Welcome to episode three of Under the Sun. This is going to be a doozy. Uh, unless you're a cosmologist or really into quantum physics, uh, prepare to have your brain matter stretched out just a little bit. In a good way, in a good way. I, I promise, um, you know, since we, since we laid down the foundation last week for what Under the Sun is all about, uh, let's dive in and start at the very beginning. And by the beginning, I mean the very beginning. Welcome to Under the Sun. Good evening, my fellow Americans. The battleground is over. From the special theory of relativity. Weighed in the light of a broader consideration. Until we have first proven acceptable to ourselves. Resting securely upon the mountain of eternal truth. Aggressive conduct, if allowed to go unchecked and unchallenged, ultimately leads to war. Persuasion through speeches and books is too often discarded for disruptive demonstrations aimed at bludgeoning the unconvinced into action. The battle of Britain is about to begin. To transform the history of man. A pointillism painting like those of George Surat, you know, the one with like the 19th century looking folks in the park and the ladies holding umbrellas and everybody's got a fancy hat on, uh, that kind of painting. Uh, when you get up close, it looks like just a bunch of small blots of dots of color, uh, and it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. It's only when you step back and look at the whole painting from a distance, it all comes together into something more beautiful. Now. Personally, I have no idea what happened in the first moments of matter beginning to form out of nothingness and empty space, and there is no shortage of creation accounts from religions and cultures all over the world. Astrophysicists, astronomers, and folks of similar scientific bent think they have a handle on just what happened way back in the very beginning of the universe. So that being said, let's see if we can peek outside the cave and investigate the Big Bang Theory. Mankind has always looked up in the sky for higher meaning. The stars have guided ships, the movement of celestial bodies were seen as omens of both good and terrible fates. Uh, the sky fascinates us, uh, it reminds us how small we are, and the theories of how we got here, why we're here, and what we're here for span across millennia, philosophical thought, creation myths from numerous cultures, and science as well. Now. Before we dive into the today's content, uh, there are some pretty crazy creation myths out there. Uh, if you want to dive into a whole wormhole of things that you know are just silly and ridiculous, uh, just just Google um, creation myths from around the world or something in line with that, and there is no shortage. Every single culture, uh, some, especially in ancient times, you know, every single city within a culture had a different theory of creation itself and how they came into being. For those of you who have listened before, you know that I, I tend to butcher uh, some of the words. Um, I should probably start putting some pronunciation guides or something in here, but I'm going to do my best. Uh, in ancient Hindu culture, Haran. Yagarbha, Yagarbha, yeah, Haran Yagarbha, or the Golden Womb, which is much easier to say, is described as a uh, primordial golden egg from which the whole universe came to be. The Golden Womb floated in the pitch black emptiness of non-existence for a single year before it broke into two halves, each becoming a realm, the Svarga and the Prithvi, Prithvi, yeah. The cosmic egg is thus the source of all life and creation. And many scholars point out the clear connection between the cosmic egg and the Big Bang Theory, where both indicate that the universe was created from a single point. Uh, this was somewhat popular across cultures uh, from Polynesians, the Finnish, the Greeks, the Phoenicians. Uh, the egg was really kind of a, a, a really big creation theme throughout a lot of uh of old myths about creation and you know when you when you think about an egg you know 
Um, it it kind of makes sense from just an observational standpoint. When people are trying to explain something, they relate it to something that they already know. And at that time, uh, I'm sure that they had seen chickens and eggs and ducks and their eggs. And, oh, well, there's new life coming from this egg. That must be something along the same lines of what happened long ago that brought us into being as well. So for, you know, a Neanderthal-looking dude way back when, you know, it might have made more sense back then than it does now. And some, like I said before, some cultures had multiple creation theories. Ancient Egypt, for example, had several. A unique creation story for every major city representing uh, many of their uh, pantheon of gods that they, that they worshipped at the time. Similar to Greece, Mesopotamia, and the rest of the world in general. Um, there's just no shortage of creation myths. Uh, but we're going to fast forward just a bit. Uh, the Big Bang Theory proposes that the universe originated from a hot and dense singularity and underwent rapid expansion and has been evolving and expanding ever since. It provides a framework to understand the large-scale structures of the universe, uh, the cosmic background radiation, and the abundance of light elements that are visible today. In the early 20th century, most astronomers believed that the universe was static and unchanging. However, in the 1910s and 1920s, a series of observations and measurements challenged this prevailing view. But in 1912, an American astronomer named Vesto Melvin Slipher observed that life emitted from distant galaxies appeared to be shifting towards longer wavelengths, or the red end of the electromagnetic spectrum. This phenomenon known, is known as the redshift. Slipher noticed that nearly all galaxies he observed showed a redshift, indicating that they were moving away from us. Well, that's great and all, but what is redshift? The simplest explanation is, is comparing redshift to the sound of a passing ambulance siren. Um, when it's approaching, it sounds different than when it's going away from you. And we've all experienced that, whether you're in traffic and you, you see the flashing lights in the distance, all of a sudden you hear the noise, it sounds a certain way, and then once it's beside you, it sounds a certain way, and then as it's going away from you, it sounds entirely different. Well, that's similar to the way uh, light waves move. Uh, they, they do kind of the same thing when a light when light is traveling towards you, it looks one way, and then when it is going away from you, it is a different way, at least when you're looking at it through, you know, more advanced telescopes um, that we have today and are able to, to utilize. Well, Slipher was able to actually observe this phenomenon at the uh, Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona. And guess what? Uh, here's a local tie. This guy was from Indiana. Uh, he actually graduated from Indiana University. Uh, so uh, Slifer was a Hoosier. And uh, that's not the only Indiana tie that we're going to have in this episode today. There's actually a, a, lot of, a lot of cool things, you know, have come from Indiana. Uh, as the saying goes, there is more than corn in Indiana. So not only does technology play a huge role in our ability to understand the universe around us, mathematics also plays a huge role in this as well. And in 1915, Albert Einstein, you know, I've heard of him, crazy hair, good at math, uh, he developed the general theory of relativity, which described the effects of gravity and the structure of space and time. His equations allowed for a dynamic and not so static universe that could actually expand or contract. However, you know, at the time, Einstein believed in the static universe and introduced the cosmological constant to counter any expansion or, or contraction. So Einstein remained with the majority of the scientific community of the day, holding to steady-state theory holding that holds that the universe is static and unchanging. But allow me to explain steady-state theory a little bit more and set, up, and set this up properly. So steady-state theory was first put forth by British scientists Sir Hermann Bondy, an Austrian-British mathematician and cosmologist, Thomas Gold, an Austrian-born American astrophysicist and professor of astronomy at Cornell University, and Sir Fred Hoyle, an English astronomer who also would go on to write some uh, nonfiction books as well. Interesting, interesting uh, little trio that we have going on. Uh, they got their brains together. And um, they came up with steady state theory. And it essentially is, and I'll quote, a view that the universe is always expanding but maintaining a constant average density 
with matter being continuously created to form new stars and galaxies at the same rate that old ones become unobservable, unobservable as a consequence of their increasing distance or velocity of recession. A steady-state universe has no beginning or end in time, and from any point with, within it, the view on the grand scale, the average density and arrangements of galaxies are the same. Now, the Big Bang Theory and steady-state theory are opposed. Steady-state theory theorized that the universe has been constant. It's just always been there, recycling and reusing matter and material contained as it expands and as it changes its form, but it ultimately holds that same overall makeup and look throughout its entire, entire cycle. So Albert Einstein, in his theory of relativity, developed the the perfect cosmological principle essentially to allow for the constant unmoving universe that steady state theory proposed. Einstein's general theory of relativity overall actually permits, as I said before, for the expanding and contracting of the universe initially. It's not until the perfect cosmological principle was added that the steady state theory was able to be reconciled to the general theory of relativity. So Einstein was supporting the popular scientific belief of the day by adding this principle into his equation. However, he might have been better off in the long run actually letting the general theory of relativity go as it was with, without the perfect cosmological principle. Um, and he probably would have just hit the nail on the head at the time. But it's important to note that everything man knew about the universe was based under the false conception that the Milky Way galaxy was all there was in the universe. Mankind's gaze has always been restricted. Imagine looking through one of today's hobby telescopes, like the one you probably purchased from Hobby Lobby, and looked at the moon with the kids um, and, and tried to track some stars. Uh, it's hard enough to position the damn thing, let alone get a clear view of really anything that's out there. Now, the earliest known telescope was made in the Netherlands in 1608. Imagine how much more terrible the images were at that time. You think your telescope is blurry now? Well, <laughs> why don't you travel back to 1608, uh, go visit the Netherlands, and take a look through their really, really, really crappy rudimentary telescopes that they were using back in the day. It was so blurry. Um, Isaac Newton actually built the first reflecting telescope in 1668, which I am sure was a great improvement, but still not up to the quality of even today's Hobby Lobby telescopes that you can get. By the time Edwin Hubble came to the stage, the technological advances and the tools used to observe the universe had come a long way forward. Although others have been able to see the universe around us, Hubble would notice a lot more in 1919 than had ever been observed before. So, who is Edwin Hubble? Well, Hubble was an American astronomer who conducted extensive observations of galaxies throughout the 1920s. Um, Ed was an all-American boy hailing from Wheaton, Illinois. Uh, he was a gifted athlete. Uh, he played baseball, football. He ran track in high school. Uh, he actually played basketball and led the University of Chicago's uh, team to their first Big Ten Conference title way back in 1907. So um, he was a stud. Uh, he was also a U.S. Army veteran. Uh, he served in the time period of the Great War in the 2nd Battalion, 343rd Infantry Regiment. And luckily for him, uh, though he was deployed, he did not actually see any frontline uh, combat. So he, he got a little lucky in, in the trench warfare uh, that I'm sure we'll be diving into at some point. After the Great War, Ed came back, uh, studied law uh, as a Rhodes Scholar at Cambridge, uh, beginning his education at the University of Chicago. And he ended up getting his law degree because it's something that he promised his dad he would do. Uh, but he never lost his uh, interest in astronomy that he'd had since he was a young child. It was just something that he couldn't shake. Uh, and he actually never used his law degree. He actually came to New Albany, Indiana. So there's your tie-in back to the Hoosier State. But after a year of teaching high school Spanish and high school science, um, he entered graduate school and studied astronomy at Chicago University's Yerkes Observ Observatory in Wisconsin, 
where he received his Ph.D. in 1917. And now Ed was finally prepared to pursue his passion. So after he graduated with his Ph.D., he landed a really awesome job uh, at the Mount Wilson Observatory in California. Ed was finally able to get his hands on the 100-inch Hooker Telescope, the newest, biggest, and best telescope in the world at the time. And what a name, too, uh, the Hooker Telescope. Uh, it was actually named after a pretty seedy burlesque club Hubble used to frequent uh, before he graduated from Cambridge with his friends. He'd actually met his first wife there. Uh, she was a dancer at the club, and, well, you know, that's actually a lie. Uh, no, uh, the Hooker Telescope was named for John uh, Daggett Hooker, an American ironmaster, an amateur scientist, and an astronomer who was also a philanthropist. And uh, he actually made the initial donations uh, for the Hubble, not the Hubble, for the Hooker Telescope's uh, creation. Uh, and this was, like I said, the largest telescope in the world uh, at that time. At the Mount Wilson Observatory, Hubble measured the distances between celestial objects, uh, galaxies, stars, all kinds of stuff. Um, he used a variety of methods, and then he compared these distance measurements with the red shifts of the galaxies. Uh, his observations made in 1924 proved conclusively that the Andromeda Nebula and the Triangulum Nebula were much too distant to be part of the Milky Way, and that they were, in fact, entire galaxies outside of our own. Now, this was first hypothesized as early as 1755 when Immanuel Kant wrote The General History of Nature and the Theory of, of the Heavens. Um, the hypothesis was opposed to many in the astronomical establishment of the time, in particular by Harvard University-based uh, Harlow Shapley. Now, Shapley was an American scientist and head of the Harvard College Observatory. And he had just participated in the great debate with Herbert D. Curtis. And this debate was on the nature of nebula and the galaxies and the size of the universe. And the debate took place on April 26, 1920, in the hall of the United States National Academy of Sciences in Washington, D.C. Now, Shapley took the side that spiral nebula, what are now called galaxies, are inside of our Milky Way, while Curtis also a scientist, he took the side that the spiral nebula or island universes were far outside of our own Milky Way and comparable in size and nature to our own Milky Way. This issue and debate are the start of extragalactical astronomy. Despite the opposition, Hubble, who was then 35 years old, had his findings first published in the New York Times on November 23, 1924, uh, and then presented them to other astronomers at the January 1, 1925 meeting of the American Ast Astronomical Society. Hubble made a remarkable discovery. The further away the galaxy was, the higher its redshift. Now, in other words, the more distant a galaxy, the faster it appeared to be moving away from us. Hubble formulated a, re a relationship known as Hubble's Law, which states that the recessional velocity of a galaxy is directly proportional to its distance from us. Hubble's observations and the subsequent formulation of Hubble's law provided strong evidence for an expanding universe. So steady state theory was now in trouble. Uh, the idea that galaxies were moving away from one another implied that in the past, they also must have had to have been closer at some point. Now this led scientists to envision a scenario where the universe originated from a highly compressed or dense state an idea that laid the foundation for the Big Bang Theory. The discovery challenged Einstein's static universe hypothesis and the cosmological constant fell out of favor within the broader scientific community. Okay. Um, anybody bored yet? Uh, let's take a quick sponsor break, take a breath, and then we'll continue. Under the Sun is brought to you today by Foster and Friends with Brent Foster. Join host Brent Foster where he has peer-to-peer -peer conversations with his friends, from entrepreneurs and creators to corporate soldiers and humble leaders. There is often a lot to learn and laugh about when listening to the stories of others. Join Brent in honoring their lives, sharing their stories, and gathering new perspective. Check out episode number nine to get to know me a little better. Brent is an awesome man filled with a wealth of knowledge. And he's been in the financial world for a while now, so he is literally filled with a wealth of knowledge. So check out Foster and Friends on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen. 
All righty. Thank you, sponsors. Who needs a recap? All right, let's go over it real fast. Okay, here we go. People thought the universe hatched from an egg, or stars were fireflies who got stuck on the Earth's ceiling. Um, later, they thought the Milky Way galaxy was all there was in the universe. And that was scientific fact until 1929. Edwin Hubble proved a bunch of well-educated and notable cosmologists and scientists wrong. You could say he uh, was uh, forcing folks outside of the cave. A uh, little throwback to episode two for you. And the scientific world was now adjusting its eyes to a brand new reality. Well, in 1927, all of this was going on kind of simultaneously all around the world. Uh, an astronomer named Georges Lamatre, uh, a Belgian Catholic priest and theoretical physicist, mathematician, and astronomer, who was also the professor of physics at the Catholic University of Louvain, had a novel idea when he took notice of changing in the distance between celestial bodies himself. Old George Porgy and his telescope, uh, mathematical equations, and continued observation revealed that all the universe was expanding, same thing as Hubble was seeing, they were just on different sides of the of the Atlantic Ocean at the time. And not only were objects moving away from the Earth, they were also moving away from each other as well. So who was George and why should we trust anything this guy says? I mean, he's Belgian. I know they got great chocolates, but let's be real. So Lamatre was born in 1894 in Charleroi, uh, Belgium. As, and uh, as a young man, he was attracted to both science and theology. Um, but World War I kind of interrupted his studies. Uh, he actually went and served as a field artillery officer and witnessed the first poison gas attack in history. So um, it's a feather in your cap, one that very few people ever want to wear. After the war, Lamatre studied theoretical physics, and in 1923 he was ordained as an abbey. Uh, the following year he pursued his scientific studies with the distinguished English astronomer Arthur Eddington, who regarded him as a very brilliant student who was wonderfully quick, clear-sighted, and of great mathematical ability. Um, but really, what does Art know? Come on. Well, he actually knows quite a bit. Between the First World War and his death in 1944, Arthur completed the transit observations for the Zodiac Catalog, took an expedition in 1919 to observe an eclipse where he confirmed Einstein's predictions that the slight shift in starlight was caused by the gravitational field of the sun. He then published Space, Time, and Gravitation in 1920. And he also published Mathematical Theory of Relativity in 1923, which sought to explain the mathematical details of Einstein's theory of gravitation and special relativity. Eddington published his first book, Stellar Movements and the Structures of the Universe, in 1914 and laid the groundwork for understanding all that exists in the universe. And actually, his book, The Internal Construction of Stars, which was published in 1926, remained one of the best-selling astronomy books for decades. He did a ton of other really scientifically great things as well, like formulating the foundations of our current understanding of how stars work, their limits... He discovered mass-luminosity relationship, which kind of shows that, you know, that the size of the star is directly proportional to its luminosity, lum, luminosity. And before he passed, Eddington attempted to unite quantum theory, uh, relativity, and gravitation. Uh, his research published later as fundamental theory, and this guy said Lamatre was a very brilliant student. So, you know, I'll take his word for it. He sounds pretty accomplished. I think he knows what he's talking about. So, after Lamatre studied under Arthur, he went to America, where he visited the most major centers of astronomical research. Uh, he received his PhD in physics from MIT. Um, good school, I've heard of it. Uh, a lot of a lot of big brains go there. Uh, and in 1925, at the age of 31, Lamatre accepted a professorship at the Catholic University of Louvain, where he was actually injured in an accidental bombing of his home by the U.S. Army Corps uh, during World War II. So. Whoops, um, sorry about that, George. <laughs> it wasn't me. George also served as the president of the Pontifical Academy of Sciences uh, from 1960 until his death in 1966. So Lamatre was a very intelligent man who had earned the accolades of those who taught him as well as those he would later teach. So we know a little bit more about George. Let's go back to 1929. So Hubble and Lamatre were now in the same cosmic boat. The universe was expanding, so when it began, it must make sense that it would have been smaller than what it was in 1927 and 
1929 and, and certainly smaller than it is now. We know this expansion of the universe as Hubble-Lamatre law. And if we extrapolate this cosmic expansion further using you know, what we know of the laws of physics and the, theor the theory describes an increasingly concentrated universe preceded by a solitary spot in which time loses meaning. Scientists commonly call this singularity. Singularity. Well, uh, it might just be me, but it sounds like a really bad show where a bunch of college-age kids all live in a huge house, and of course it's on a beach, and all the drama unfolds, and it just it really sounds like a really terrible TV show. Um, <laughs> so we've got an all-American astronomer and his sidekick, a Belgian priest named George, complete with hookers, I mean, <coughs> hooker telescope, and abacus, or abacuses, abaca, abacai? Screw it. Uh, calculators. They had calculators. Well, they discovered the universe is growing. So now the scientific community wouldn't immediately throw out steady-state theory and just be like, oh, well, these guys figured out something really cool. We're just going to go over there. In fact, the Big Bang uh, was actually a pejorative term coined by proponents of steady-state theory, namely Sir Fred Hoyle. There were two sides to this argument now. A steady-state universe with expansion accounted for by dark matter versus a universe that expanded from a singular or at least a smaller starting point. And now it's time for our very first ever nerd fight. In this corner, we have the all-American Edwin the Hooker Hubble and his Bruce Lee sidekick, George the Abacus Lamantra. And in the other corner, we have a bunch of knighted science geeks armed with small magnifying glasses and roll paper maps in the Milky Way galaxy. This is like a scene straight out of a Quentin Tarantino movie. Who will be victorious? We know now, but that doesn't change how utterly ridiculous this imagery is. Stay tuned for more. So, anyway, uh... <laughs> Now, let's fast forward a bit because really between 1929 and what we're going to talk about next is just a lot of scientific arguing. And quite frankly, doesn't, it doesn't lend much to our, to our, to our storyline here today. Now, Bell Labs began bouncing radio signals off of satellites back in 1964 in New Jersey of all places. <laughs> Dirty Jersey. Uh, that, uh, funny story, uh, an old army buddy of mine actually dated a girl from Jersey, and that's what we called her, Dirty Jersey, uh, or Dirty Jers for short. She, uh, she seemed to like it. It kind of fit her. Um, <laughs> anyway, Bell Labs did everything they could to keep their signals as clear as possible. They accounted for ambient urban noise and even attributed some of the interference they were hearing to bird droppings that were littering their uh, satellite dishes. No matter what they did, though, they couldn't clear the signal. The birds had it out for those satellite dishes like a freshly washed car's windshield, and they were just not letting it stay clean. But it was actually coming from space itself. The noise that they were hearing would become known as cosmic microwave background radiation. Now, we're going to call this CMB. Um, CMB is a faint glow of light that fills the universe, falling to Earth from every single direction with the same intensity. Think of it like a residual heat or like the afterglow of the Big Bang streaming through all of space. When Bell Labs consulted with some MIT Cambridge folks about the problem, they were able to confirm that this was, in all likelihood, CMB. Now somehow, and I don't understand why, but this backs up Hubble-Lamatra theory, proving that expansion is now plausible due to the presence of these microwaves. Personally, I don't know how microwaves work. I have one in my kitchen. I can operate it pretty easily. I, I can pop popcorn. I can heat up leftovers. You know, everything just seems to work fine. It does its thing, and I don't need to know any more about it. Uh, but we're not talking about the microwaves in our kitchens. We're talking about cosmic microwave background radiation. It would have been like looking at a thermal telescope into a fire. When the Big Bang happened, if we were able to watch it, it would have been bright and clear. But let's say it's the morning after, and now that fire has died down, you can even touch the coals that are left uh, in the fireplace and not get burnt. But 
if you were to look at it through a thermal imaging device, you would see the remnants of heat left over. You would see the, the oranges and the blues and the yellows and all of the different colors come into play, showing that there is still residual heat there. Well, that's what cosmic microwave background radiation is. It's that residual wave that is left over. Now, these waves and sound were, much, were once much larger uh, than they were. Uh, when they were first observed. Due to the distance that they had traveled in the expansion, they had been stretched into these microwaves. So these are now kind of the, the scars uh, of the Big Bang. The European Space Agency, if that really is a thing, um, the CMB is the furthest and oldest light any telescope can detect. It's impossible to see further beyond the time of its release because the universe was completely opaque. The CMB takes astronomers as close as possible to the Big Bang and is currently one of the most promising ways we have been able to understand the birth and evolution of the universe in which we now live. Okay, European science people. Uh, thank you for that explanation. Um, I think we got a handle on this. Yet, still, despite all this work and all the research that I've done, there's still a ton of questions. Uh, we touched on the Big Bang singularity uh, CMB, Hubble, Lamatre, and others. But what really caused it? What was going on before? Well, Dr. Will Kinney, PhD uh, and professor of physics at the University of Buffalo College of Arts and Sciences, says, quote, We don't know anything about what became before inflation. It's doubtful that we'll ever know. One reason is because cosmic inflation is a big eraser. Any trace of initial conditions of how it all got started get diluted because it's an exponentially large expansion. Any trace of the circumstances that led to inflation are erased by inflation itself. No matter where it starts, it ends up in the same places. <clears throat> Thank you, Dr. Kinney. Now, some scientists believe that we're just in the latest iteration of a big bounce cycle that has been going on in the universe for well forever all known matter expands and contracts within the known and unknown universe the problem is that the physics we use to understand the early universe can take scientists and mathematicians only so far what this really tells us is that we need new physics to solve the problem our current knowledge and understanding of math science and everything just isn't good enough same as the telescopes in the 1600s didn't really show us clear imaging and led to a lot of uh, scientific misbelief in theories that are proven now to be false. The mathematics and the astronomical technology that we have today just isn't quite good enough to get us to that next level of understanding what came before the Big Bang. So I guess uh, keep working, scientists. Uh, whatever you come up with will be something else we'll all just need to prove later with more science. Uh, speaking of more science, uh, have you ever heard of string theory? It may just be the key to the pre-Big Bang understanding that we're searching for, although I'm personally not likely. String theory is a model of a theoretical physis physics that is supposedly capable of handling gravity and other forces come at ultra at ultra high energies which means that string theory claims it can explain the earliest moments of the universe now i'm not a particle physicist but luckily for us those folks make youtube videos too today we know mo molecules are made up of atoms and atoms nucleuses are made up of particles known as neutrons protons and electrolytes and if we go further still we see the limit of what we can currently see through ultra-microscopic observation. And these things are called quarks. So what's a quark? Well, they call it string theory because theoretical f physicists believe that a, a string or filament, kind of like what we'd see in a light bulb, is what is within these quarks that make up the atoms. And these strings supposedly vibrate in different ways and yield the particles they make up. But... Nobody can see them, so it's just a theory. And by the way, atoms are made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons, not electrolytes. But who did I get with that? Who, who thought it was electrolytes? 
In the 1980s, physicists realized that string theory had the potential to incorporate all four of nature's uh, forces. Uh, gravity, electromagnetism, strong force, which is the force that binds the quarks together in clusters to make them more familiar subatomic particles. And it also holds together the atomic nucleuses that underlie interactions between all particles containing quarks, and also weak force. And this controls the decay of unstable subatomic particles and initiates the nuclear fusion reaction like the one that fuels the sun. Pretty neat. Uh, does it make sense to you? Because I have no idea, and I have been trying uh, so hard to understand this. Um, it kind of upsets me that I don't. So while string theory is still a vibrant area of research that is undergoing some pretty rapid development recently, it remains primarily a mathematical construct because we can't observe it, and there's no way to experiment at this time. But string theory points to something, though. The Big Bang was not a beginning, which is one part of the larger process, like the more cyclic cosmology, which is like that big bounce cycle I alluded to earlier. String theory gives this idea of mathematical precedence. The cyclic universe goes, through, goes about continually bouncing between Big Bangs and Big Contractions, maybe even for eternity back in time, and for all intents and purposes, eternity into the future. And right now, I have to say, you know, the Big Bang Theory sounds plausible. Certainly, the, the universe started off with a bang from a scientific view uh, due to something that they just haven't found yet, and from a Christian view um, from the mouth and word of God. So let's now dive into that, um, and then I'll extrapolate with my own ideas after. So Christian creationism is the belief that God created the universe and everything as it is described in the Bible's book of Genesis. Uh, according to this belief, God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. We're all pretty familiar with the creation story. If you grew up in Western society and you've attended church at all, it's probably been gone over a few times. Within the context of biblical teaching and the timeline contained within the Bible— and the verifiable historical events contained therein, Christians broadly believe that the universe is young, around six to 10,000 years old, depending on who you ask. Some Christian creationists interpret, it, interpret the Bible's creation account literally, meaning that creation occurred within six 24-hour days, while others believe that the six-day creation is a metaphor or symbolic. There are also variations in uh, Christian creationism as well. Uh, there's young earth creationism, which asserts that, that the earth and the universe are no more than 10,000 years old, and old earth creationism, which accepts the scientific evidence for the age of the universe and the earth, but still maintains that God created everything. Needless to say, this is not widely accepted in the scientific community due to the lack of scientific evidence supporting it, According to Gallup, though, 40% of U.S. adults ascribe to the strictly creationist view of human origins, believing that God created them in their present form roughly within the past 10,000 years. Now, young Earth creationist adherents reject scientific evidence that suggests the Earth is much older, such as uh, radiometric dating, cosmic background microwave radiation, uh, and methods um, that are used to record uh, the, the dating of fossils, like carbon dating, as they believe that those methods are flawed and, and, and ultimately unreliable. Instead, they interpret uh, geological and biological data within the framework that supports a 6,000-year-old Earth. Young Earth creationists are uh, kind of a, a more literal view of the Bible and is often associated with the more conservative Christian groups. Now, old earth creationism is the belief that God created the universe and the earth, but accepts that the scientific evidence that we now know today that the earth is billions of years old. Adherents to this line of thought believe that the account, believe that the account of creation presented in the Bible's book of Genesis should not be interpreted as a scientifically accurate or literal descriptions of the origin of the universe and all life on earth. Instead, Old Earth creationists interpret the creation account as a poetic or allegorical description. Uh, it's meant to convey spiritual truths rather than literal scientific facts. 
They also acknowledge that scientific evidence, such as the methods that I mentioned earlier, provide evidence for the Earth's age and the evolution of life. Then that evidence is reliable. Old Earth creationists also must is often associated with more moderate Christian groups that are theologians who seek to reconcile faith with scientific understanding. Imagine that the Christian community is divided on the subject. Go figure. Honestly, I'm good either way with either one of these um, definitions uh, as a Christian uh, because, well, that's what the Bible says, and I'm no seminary graduate or biblical theologian, so since the Word of God says it, I tend to believe it. Yet recently, my mind uh, begins to wander towards old earth creationism, creationism for, for several different reasons. The first reason, how in the world do we understand time? And what is the difference between God's time and the human constructs we've created to tell time? And make no mistake, uh, the human measurements of time are man-made constructs. We no longer say things like, in the second year of the presidency of Joseph Biden, such and such happened. Instead, we say in October of 2022, such and such happened. And why is that? Well, time is defined as a concept used to describe the duration or sequence of events and actions. It's a continuous and irreversible flow of moments that occur in a particular order from past through the present and into the future. And time can be measured and quantified using various units such as seconds, minutes, hours, weeks, days, and so on. Uh, time is essential for understanding the relationships between events, predicting future outcomes, and organizing our lives and societies. Humans have measured times in many ways throughout history, and the methods used have evolved over time as well. But here are some of the most significant ways humans have measured time. One of the earliest ways to measure time was by observing the movements of the sun and the moon. People could use the position of the sun and the sky to tell what time of day to tell whether it was day or night. Go figure. Uh, and then after that, you know, water clocks actually began to be used in ancient Egypt and China as well to use the measuring time. And how they worked was that they actually filled a bucket with water and then tilted the bucket so that water would begin to drip water out of one container into another at a consistent rate. And this allowed people to measure the passing of time based on the amount of water that had dripped. Uh, after that, sundials were used in Greece and Roman in the Roman periods, and they worked by casting a shadow on a marked dial as the sun moved across the sky. Mechanical clocks came around in Europe in the 14th century, and they used gears and other mechanical components to uh, measure time more accurately, similar to the to the watch that I'm wearing now. You know, it has the gears and the automatic movement that, you know, makes the second hand tick, which moves the minute hand and the hour hand, you know. Not much has really changed since the 14th century, except uh, there is atomic clocks now, and they use the vibrations of atoms uh, to measure time with immensely incredible precision. Uh, they are currently the most accurate timekeeping devices available with an accuracy of one second in 100 million years. Imagine not having to reset your watch for a hundred million years. It wouldn't matter. You'd be dead, but you'd have a really cool watch. It's probably very, very expensive as well. Anyway, uh, people have developed really increasingly sophisticated ways to measure time as technology has advanced. The same way that, you know, as technology advances, the scientific community is able to utilize technology to observe things better, more accurately. As technology continues to advance, you know, we generally gain a better understanding of the world around us. Now, our understanding of time went beyond day and night and developed into a calendar year by observing the cycles of the sun and the moon and also tracking the seasons as well. And it began with the observations of the seasonal, changing, of the seasonal changes surrounding early humans, and they learned how to utilize the seasons and the lengths of the daylight and the positions of the star in the skies. And they use this knowledge to plan their hunting and gathering activities and predict whether certain plants would be available for harvest. And then next, humans started using lunar calendars, which are based on the phases of the moon. Now, a lunar month is approximately 29.5 days long. So lunar calendars usually have about 12 months of altering 29 and 30 day months. Uh, which totals out to about 354 days a year. However, it wasn't perfect, and it didn't line up with the solar year, 
which is approximately 365.24 days long. So instead of the lunar calendar, we threw that out, and then we went to solar calendars, which were based on the position of the sun in the sky. And now the ancient Egyptians and the Babylonians both used solar calendars. And the Babylonians divided the year into 12 months of 30 days, plus five extra days at the end of the year. So, you know, hey, five bonus days, yay! What a great time to be alive in Babylon, you know. This was closer to the actual length of the solar year, but still not perfect. Well, in 45 BCE, Julius Caesar introduced the Julian calendar, which was based on the solar year. And the Julian calendar had 12 months with alternating months of 30 and 31 days, except for February, which had 28, and except for leap years, which had 29 days in February. And the Julian calendar was an improvement on all the other previous calendars, but it still drifted out of sync with the seasons over time. In 1582, Pope Gregory XIII introduced the Gregorian calendar, which is the calendar used by most of the world today. The Gregorian calendar is based on the solar year of 365.2425 days, and it has a leap year every four years, except for years divisible by 100, but not divisible by 400. So yeah, 400, nah, if you're not divisible by 400, not, not going to happen. Well, this calendar is more accurate than any other calendar that's ever been come up with to date. Um, and it keeps the equinoxes and solstices aligned with the same dates each and every year. So great job, you know, Pope Gregory. I'm pretty sure you pawn this off on a bunch of priests and a lot of monks and people to do it for you. But you know what? It's called a Gregorian calendar. So of course you get the credit. But to be clear, all of these things are man-made constructs uh, to understand and explain the passage of time. Yet, do they actually reflect God's time? Personally, I would say no. And in the singularity of the Big Bang, and before time was, and in the singularity of the Big Bang, and before, time was likely inconsequential, or at least a hell of a lot different than what we know it to be today. What good is time to an eternal being? In the Bible, it states in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, But, beloved, be not ignorant of these things, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. So, based on the common interpretation of the genealogies, which I've actually done some math here, <coughs> so don't, I'm not really great at math. Um, never one of my strong suits. This is calculator math for sure, but... The total number of years from Adam to Jesus is approximately 4,000 years. Uh, and this number is based up adding up all the ages of the individuals listed in all of the genealogies of the Old Testament, as well as other biblical events and historical data. Now, 4,000 times 365, for simplicity's sakes, equals about 1,460,000 years. Now, multiply that number by a thousand, and that is just from Adam to Jesus. And perhaps what Peter says was, you know, metaphorical, you know, you know, time doesn't matter to God. You know, it's like a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years as a day, dude. You know, it don't matter. Seconds pass differently. Uh, maybe that's just what he meant by that, and it's not meant to be taken literally. You know, but I, you know, the, the math works out to be, you know, that's, that's a lot of time. Um, so what if science... And all the scientific reasoning and the theorizing is close, but just not quite there. Uh, what if carbon dating is really, really close, but not 100% accurate? What if all we know right now is all that we know because of the limits of technology that we currently have at our disposal? How many times in history has mankind adjusted what was once known as a universal law or set their understanding aside entirely for new knowledge that changed the entire world? It's kind of crazy to think about, right? It's just a little wee bit mind-bending, but just wait, because this is just the tip of the iceberg on this subject, and I'm certain that we'll dive into more topics like this in the future. Now, I'm not proposing a new thought. Uh, philosophically and theologically, these ideas have been debated over since, well, since man first recognized the existence of the divine. The traditional view has been that God is timeless, and in the sense of being outside of time altogether, that is, he exists, but does not exist at any point in time, and he does not experience temporal secession. What may be the dominant view of philosophers today is that he is temporal, 
but everlasting. That is, God never began to exist, and he will never go out of existence. He exists at at each moment in time. And we can philosophize as much as we want, but the fact remains, we must hold on to whatever belief we may currently hold with an open hand. Well, that is, if you don't have faith. Science will adjust itself as new evidence arises, but it may never progress to the point of confirming beyond a doubt. More research will likely always be needed. Now, for those of us on the other end, that is, those of us who don't require science to back up our faith, we can have fun theorizing and seeking more depth and understanding. Not every Christian is a flat earther and opposed to science. Most of us just recognize that science can only take us so far. That's where faith sheds light, and being right doesn't really matter because, well, for us, God's right, and that's enough. The Big Bang could have very well been the voice of God booming everything into existence. We may just not be seeing the big picture in the scientific sense. We could be missing something, or maybe God is just on the other end of the telescope. You may not just be able to see or explain him yet. To use the words of Neil deGrasse Tyson, the universe is under no obligation to make sense to you. And even after all the YouTube videos, scientific articles, and stuff I've read, it still doesn't make complete sense to me. Science today is, we know what we know, until we know something new. Then we can add that new knowledge in its most applicable way. Modern science is not without its flaws of modern understanding. It's as human as you or I, and thus, it is not the ultimate truth. It's just man's best guess. And personally, I'll be honest, I don't need to know. For me, faith is enough, and I respect the work of the scientific community has done so far. I mean, it, it's truly tremendous. Um, it's incredible what can be accomplished and uncovered when, when you set your mind to it. Uh, I would just caution, you know, don't be surprised if the answers are never fully found, or if one day, while looking through the newest and best telescopes, you find the answer was written down a long, long time ago, and the eyes staring back at you through the lens are the eyes of your creator. Well, thanks again for joining me for episode three of Under the Sun. Technically, this is episode three. Um, I'm Tom Markwell, and I invite you to like, subscribe, and follow Under the Sun on your favorite podcast service. Write a message or request a topic at underthesunpod at gmail.com. And this podcast is produced and encoded through IndiePod Lab. IndiePod Lab has everything you need to effortlessly build your brand in the podcast space. There's a ton of noise in the world, and IndiePod Lab can amplify your voice and deliver your content to the masses. Why invest thousands in a home and office studio when you can visit the professionals at IndiePod Lab? Enhance your business's marketing efforts by delivering real content. Expand your current customer base, tell your story, and share your unique message. It's time to stop thinking about your next move and get in the studio at IndiePod Lab. From recording audio and accompanying video to content delivery, the experts at IndiePod Lab can help make it happen. For more information or to uh, connect with IndiePod Lab, shoot them an email at indiepodlab at gmail.com. That's indie, I-N-D-Y, podlab at gmail.com.